Take two. It's Ken Dashow's okay. Beatle Revolution. One, two, three, four. On iHeartRadio. Beatles Revolution number 48. I've got a very special guest in the studio with me today. Somebody who's good friends with George Harrison. Here it is, August, the anniversary of the Bangladesh concert at Madison Square Garden. The first big superstar rock benefit ever done. And he's also played with Ringo and the All-Stars. From Bad Company and Free, Mr. Simon Kirk. Uh, Simon Frederick St. George Kirk. Oh, 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 you know it. No, actually, I looked it up on Google. Simon Kirk from Bad Company fame. I did Simon Frederick St. George Kirk. Simon Frederick St. George Kirk, yes. Um, I say, my lord, can we iron the paper for you? Uh, well, you can iron the paper, but make sure it goes from east to west and not <laughs> west to east. Yeah, it, it was just... A, quite a, a name. It is quite a name. I believe my grandfather concocted it. I don't know. I, I, we, we have some very tenuous links to the royal family, um, but not as tenuous as Meghan Markle. You know, who would have thought a black divorcee would have become, uh, you know, the right. Duchess of Suffolk? God bless her. But no, I, I, I digress. Um, that's my full name, and I'm sticking by it. You know, I think it's great for the crown. For Talk about <clears throat> bringing lovely. them into modern yeah. world of saying, listen, it, that whole thing about your lineage has to go back to Cromwell before you can get married. That that ship is gone. A load of bollocks. It is. And 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 the mold was broken when Diana married because she was, quote, unquote, a commoner. Yeah. Uh, you know, she was a nanny. Even though her, her family, the Spencer family, were very well connected, they were not aristocratic. And... Um, you know, she joined the royal family, and it uh, I think it actually led to her death, poor lady. But, I know, uh, the saddest you know. part of it. Yeah. There's uh, Speaking of the queen crown, there was, <laughs> for our friend Paul McCartney, where it just seems at this point in his life they're simply making up awards for him. <laughs> like, there's literally nothing left musically to give him. They gave him the Platinum Award, the Rodinium Award. <laughs> And when she made him a companion of honor to the crown, uh -huh. and I swear, not that I'm a I'm a, a monarchist, you know, where I know mm -hmm. everything or dukedoms or whatever, but uh, I swear I'd never heard of that before. That there's a companion of the yes. companion of honor. It's a little uh, appendage to the the knight. He was made a knight. A knight, an OBE, years ago. a CBE. He's got the lot. Right. So, lot. did you see the ceremony? No. So I was watching it. You know, that's on on YouTube. And other people come up, your majesty, and say, eh, thank you, you know, you get a thing, and you know, you get a cupid doll, and a yeah. copy of the home game, and you go on. Next one, your majesty, eh, thank you for the thing. And she moves on. Paul comes up, he kneels, he gets his award, and they just start chatting. Uh, I mean, like you and I, at a club or on the golf course, uh, they just start talking. And they're just talking. I think she's got quite a soft spot for him. Remember, she's only 17 years older than him. Right. He's 76. Right. And she's now 92 or 93. So they, they almost kind of, she grew up listening to, who knows what she listened to, but look, she's not that far behind him in terms of years. So they've met quite a few times over the years, many, many times. So I'm sure there's, you know, hello. It, it was a real friendship. It was, uh, yeah. you know, whatever happened with the garden. Then <laughs> there we had to get rid of And them. those yeah. bloody corgis, they yeah. keep <laughs> pissing on my rhododendrons. It absolutely. Oh, I know what you mean, love. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, no, and we had it at St. John's Wood. I had to get rid of them. And, <laughs> you know, and if they were just chatting, old friends uh, chatting, which is amazing. As Jane, my <laughs> wife, said, you know, he, she said, at this point, why doesn't she just adopt him? 
And <laughs> it can't happen. It would never happen. But honestly, seriously, I, I ask you as a former British subject, are you an American? Are you? No, American? I'm not a citizen you're, yet. You're still a British subject. I still am, yes. Very good. Got then, a green card, but uh, I'm looking at citizenship, but it's very complex. Yes. Yeah. As so, uh, let's see. as a so as a subject to the crown. Imagine, you know, they Theresa May. They do all these like spontaneous votes and things, votes right. of confidence or no confidence. Right. If they just asked the British couple, there it is, front page Daily Mail. Who do you want to be the next king, Charlie or Paulie? Char <laughs> Charlie or Paul? I mean, they can't because Paul would win 95 to yeah, 2. He would. He would. <laughs> With a write-in vote for a lefty being on the other side. If she just said, I'm adopting Paul, he'll be next, the whole all, the whole country would go, so we, can you fix Brexit? Yeah, I think we'll stop yeah, that. Yeah, we'll, we'll, yeah, we'll, we'll, do do a, we'll do an exit from Brexit. We'll come back. We'll yeah, do and they'll just fix it because Paul wants it. Yeah, so. fix it. There's there's so much to talk to Simon about Beatle-wise, from his time with George Harrison to touring <clears> with Ringo. Um but there's, while we're on the subject of Sir Paul James McCartney, there's this wonderful moment, if you would share, uh, the last time when Paul was at Madison Square Garden. Oh, yeah. And I was there, and you were there with your lovely wife, and yeah. I'm backstage with the band, and you go to meet Paul. And it's something I have shared, I hope you don't mind, no, 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 you all no. the time with so many people, when you said to him, how do you do it? I said, the first thing I said, number one, he was by himself, he had a, he had a guitar, he was watching... I think a baseball game, which was muted. Uh, his the, wife. So he's at, he's just played three hours. Well, no, he was about to go on. Oh, it was before he was about the show. to go on. He'd done an, a two-hour sound check. Two-hour sound check. Yeah, because he does as a show. Almost, yeah. He does a two-hour show before the three-hour show. Yeah, incredible. And he doesn't uh, he doesn't alter any of the keys. Is everything is as you hear it. And I went up to him, and like most of these guys, these are a little smaller than you see them on telly. I mean, the stones are quite, they're small, not small, but they're smaller than you think they are. Because they're giants to us yeah, yeah. on the stage. So I said, it's lovely meeting you. Thanks for having us in. And by the way, how do you do it? And he said, well, they pumped me full of drugs before they pushed me out on stage. <laughs> and it's like... Bollocks. Uh, you know, no, they don't. Uh, no, I think I know. Well, I don't want to get into what he does and doesn't do. He's not a sober man, but he never had a problem. Right. Unlike Ringo, you know, uh, who is quite open about his uh, sobriety. But uh, Paul never had a problem, and uh, well, he the has fact a... that Paul has been been busted for pot, I don't know, just thirteen, fourteen times maybe just oh, during really? the Beatle years. <laughs> was it? The worst was when they they flew to to Japan. No, well, no, they flew to Bermuda or wherever they went. And got busted for pot when they arrived, oh. and then when they flew back to the United States, they got busted here at JFK. I'm like, could you not at some point have thrown it in the garbage? I mean, how you, you know you could get it somewhere else, right? Yeah, of course. And then Japan, just like well, no, what happened in Japan? Because my security guy was with them, and he was moonlighting for Paul, and they got to uh, Narita Airport after this, you know, long, long flight, and they opened the the cases. And there was this big bag of dope, which was not even hidden. And apparently Linda had just sort of thrown it on there. And Paul just buried his head in his hands. He knew he was in big trouble. And he spent 11 days in jail. And not even the Eastman family could help, you know. Because... Stuck inside these four walls, <laughs> sent inside forever. It's amazing. Never was that seen... from Band on the Run? Did you yeah, think they, that had, was, uh... they had already recorded that. Never oh. seeing Noah nice again. Like I mean, it's amazing. Wow. If I ever get out of here, thinking wow. of giving it all away, 
Isn't that amazing? That is incredible. What a coincidence. Yeah, uh, Lawrence Juber was next to him to go through customs, and he said, you're standing next to Paul McCartney, and you go, well, that's that. You just know, you know, we're just done. And he said the thing is the official was so embarrassed. You could tell he didn't want to see it. It wasn't like one of these guys your whole life, we hate these pot-smoking uh, kids, yeah. we hate these druggies, these rockers. He wasn't that. He was a younger guy. Uh-huh. But he opened it, and the supervisor was next to him to make sure that everything went smoothly By with the Paul book. and the band. Yeah. So they both saw it. He goes, so if, if maybe if the supervisor wasn't there, the guy could have closed the case fast. He goes, they didn't want it, but he saw it. The supervisor saw it. So we had to make it something. And mm. I understand that the, the embarrassment mm. of, the, of the kid opening the case. He doesn't want to find that. No, no, no. If you just put it in the middle of everything, he, wouldn't have, he could have touched the top shirt and closed it. You know, it, he didn't want it to be that no, easy. No, I understand. It's amazing. And here we are 30 years later, and it's all legal in a lot of states. <laughs> and, it, uh, and it should be. I'll and just amen say. to that. Simon Kirk, my special guest. Paul doing pop-up shows. He goes back to the Cavern Club in Liverpool last week. Oh, I didn't know. He did a, he did a sneak show at the, <laughs> at uh, Abbey Road Studios oh, in great. London. He goes across the Zebra Crossing oh, again and man, goes in. Oh, that's great. And that's his new, all summer long, he just wants to travel around the world and do Hey, I'm going to announce at two o'clock. I'm doing a show tonight at six. God. Tickets are twenty bucks, and that's it's just for fun. Can you imagine being on his live team with him? I always think Paul just must have like a beach ball of the world and just turn <laughs> it. Spins it. Hey, Tanzania, haven't been there. Yeah, let's do that. But so he went to Liverpool, and everybody was running around Liverpool like mad. Is he going to be Matthew Street? Is he going to be at the Aintree uh, Institute? Where yeah. is he going to be? That's and at good. two o'clock, a little handwritten sign went up at the cavern. Went. Uh, Special show tonight, uh, 8 o'clock, sold 100 tickets, and that was it. And then just security to lock it down until they get oh, in Oh, bless him, man. And they're having a ball. You saw that thing we did with James Corden. Oh, the, the uh, karaoke yeah. carpool? Fantastic. I was amazing? in tears. You, same here. Penny you know, Lane, I'm singing. You know, Corden's going, I'm on Penny Lane with Paul McCartney, who's singing. Penny Lane, da-da-da-da. Lovely. He, it's, I mean, when, when Corden cried, well, everybody, every... Beatles listener has said to me in Breakfast with the Beatles, I cried. I'm embarrassed to tell you. I said, mm. we all cried. Mm. When he said about his father, you know, yeah. my father, he said, you know, he, he would have loved this. And, and Paul said, well, I think he's here now. And even Paul starts to get choked up. We all up get a bit. a bit choked up. Look, it's real. For you guys, it's not an accident. From the Beatles to, pink, you know, to, to Bad Company and all the greats and Bruce and you too, it's real. It's not, you know, it's what I see when I'm backstage. Mm-hmm. It's not somebody... You know, like Brian Ray always says, you know, it's not a guy smoking a, the last butt of a cigarette, flipping away, and goes, all right, let's give him the Beatles shit. Mm. He lives for it. Mm-hmm. It's the reason he lives. Mm. Uh, somebody had asked, I had opened up the questions, and they asked Brian, where's Paul's favorite place to play, London, Liverpool, or New York? And Brian said, oh, easiest question in the world to answer. You know what Paul's favorite place to play is? Where we're going to play that night. Yeah. <laughs> he said, Dublin, Ohio, Good. Wembley Arena. Yeah. He said, when, before we go on stage, if you ever think this could get blase, before we go on stage, the boss gathers us together and says, come on, guys, we really got to rock them tonight. I don't know about this audience. Come on, we got to hit the stage. I don't want to warm up. I want to knock them on their ass as soon as we hit that stage. He goes, he's pumping you up. To get you ready for the show. He goes, how could you ever mail it in when this guy's been doing it since he's 15? Is the one kicking you in the ass going, come on, let's get That's it. That's great, man. It's amazing. Simon Kirk is here. Uh, so we can talk some Beatles uh, and George Harrison, who mm. you've got to spend quite a bit of time yeah. with. All right, one more Beatle geek fact. 
and this goes back to your early days in free because Simon was 21 when he's got one of the biggest rock hits in the world. And to this day, we are still playing it. It's one of the most popular favorite songs of the audience. It's a song you guys recorded when you were 21 called All Right Now. Mm -hmm. And it's never faded. No, it's never faded. And it's... It's not really boggled my mind because there was something special about it when, when we recorded it. Um, it was an up-tempo song because we wanted an up-tempo song. We needed an up-tempo song because Free had this penchant for mid-tempo, kind of stone, but good, but not really more cerebral than, than from the heart. I mean, you know, more physical than... than uh, more cerebral than physical. So we came up with this song. Paul and Andy came up with this song, uh, All Right Now. And I always thought Paul Kossoff should have gotten a, a credit because he came up with the... Really? He came really? up with the riff. That's important. And he came up with the you know the solo. I mean, his his contribution to All Right Now was... I should, I think should have got him a, a credit. Anyway... It became this this sort of huge hit, and we were when we recorded it in Ireland Studios, it went on and on and on because we couldn't stop. It was such a great <laughs> group, and when we finally finished it, we said we got to tell Chris Blackwell, who's the you know the head of Ireland Records at the time, and he lived in an apartment above the studio. This was about two in the morning, so the engineer said, "Let's get him out of bed." I said, yeah, fucking, yeah, out of your mind? Do you know? No. He said, he's got to hear this. Don't worry. I know he'll love it. So he calls him and he said, Chris, you've got to come down and, and hear this song. Blow me down. He comes down. He's still in his pajamas. Two in the morning. About two in the morning. And we, we're little kids. You know, we, we, we hit play and he hears the whole thing, which is five, five minutes and 30, 34 seconds. And at the end, he says, it's a hit. He said, but it's too long. Oh, no. So I'm going to do an edit. Now, back in those days, and you... You took a razor blade. Well, it was like... As the tape went over the head, an awful sound. And we're going, ah! He said, leave the studio. Come back in half an hour. And and he got the razor blade out, and he cut about, I think, two minutes out of it. And and the edit wasn't very good. By today's standards, you could you could hear the join. But it was three minutes, and top of the pops would play it. And for you who don't realize, think American Bandstand in Britain, Top of the Pops. You have to get on that if you're going to get into that money train on TV, on the telly, do the big shows. You have to be on Top of the Pops. Absolutely. And we had... Now, there was something about the lyrics that the BBC didn't like. Uh, They're going to raise the parking rate, one of Paul Rogers' lines. And they thought it was, you know, F-U-C-K. So to this day... Yeah. To this day, and I've never had the nerve to ask your friend Paul that, but to this day when I play it, and this is this is a podcast, so we are allowed to swear on occasion, <laughs> but it sounds clear as day to me, move before they raise the fucking rent. No, it's move before they raise the parking rate. You now, swear. I swear to God. I mean, <laughs> ask Paul. You and me, we're friends a long time. We've been friends a long time, The parking Ken. rate. Let's move before they raise the parking rate. Like, let's get going before... Look, I know it's parking right. I just know it is. But we have this guy come down from the BBC and he said, I need to hear the isolated vocal track to check, you know, and, and we did. I mean, all the drums and guitars were taken out right. and it was just Paul singing. And he doesn't quite sing part. It's like a fuck. It's like, 
Do you remember Michael Jackson, uh, Black and White? He, yes. Right at the end, he goes, let's play I mean, for Black or White. It's like yeah. he couldn't really sing. The word, uh, it yeah. just, I misspoke. Yeah, he, he misspoke. Yeah. So anyway, the, the guy from the BBC was quite happy. He said, all right, it's parking rate. All right, you've got it. They aired it. We, we went on next week for two weeks, and it went from like 58 to number two. We never got to number one because of bloody Mungo Jerry. You're kidding. In the summertime. Da, 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 oh, fucking hell. <laughs> Ray Dorsett, you kept us off, you bastard. Uh, In the summertime. Da, 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 yeah, Bastards. jug band, a bloody jug yeah. band. But it, you look, whatever happened to uh, you know Mungo Jerry, and Free went on to become this iconic band. We were only around five years. Um, look, the Beatles were only around... Ten years. Yeah, they recorded for seven. Yeah, seven Come years. On. Isn't that amazing? We we did a lot in a very short space of time back in those days. Um, all the big bands, you know, even Zeppelin, sixty-eight to what? Seventy. I think Presence was seventy-seven. So yeah, not 70. even ten years. Yeah, Look it's amazing when you they... think about it. Um, what I've always—it's astounding—to basically take so much of the sound of the of the personnel of Free. It's amazing. And a few years later, to rebuild Bad Company into this, you know, not a good band or a solid band. I mean, you're you're the you're the machinery mm. that keeps classic rock alive <laughs> and well. You know, it's not like it's light. It mm. is the, the Journey and and Def Leppard and Foreigner and Bad Company. This is the this is what keeps the lights on. Mm. This is classic rock. When we talk about the amazing virtuosity of Hendrix and Clapton, mm -hmm. and I'm not putting anybody else down, but I'm saying it's like like we have a restaurant, you know, and, and that's the, those are the burgers, you know, like <laughs> the, 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 the you know what I'm saying like you can't open the door, you can't get the lights on if we don't have all the Bad Company music to play. Well, look, there was something about that decade from 64 to 74 before punk came in and kicked us all up the ass. Right. It was a magical decade and 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 you could you could access a drop-down menu as to what made it so good. You got to remember back from the mid 60s on to the end of the of the 60s was the most formative time in this whole planet. You had the civil rights movement, you had Vietnam, you had women's lib. You I mean it was just the most incredible uh, and before computers came in and kind of ruined everything right. musically, I'm not I'm not knocking computers, but they did take a lot of the uh, the magic out of concocting music, you know, which is sitting down in front of a microphone with a guitar and a drummer and singing, and now you make a loop of eight bars and you can loop that for the end of time. Right, and it, it just doesn't exist anymore. So music back then was more visceral. It was more uh, knee-jerk and more from the gut and the heart rather from the, from the brain. So we we managed to do a lot back in those days because we did what we called the transit circuit. We got into a little van. They were called Ford Transits. We went all over England for two years. We stood behind Elton John at the um, the Blue Boar service station in Watford <laughs> in one winter's night, and I heard him saying, I want sausages, and, uh, you know, I want sausages with that. And he was just done a gig with um, uh, Nigel Olsen right. when, when he was a trio. And Davey, yeah. And Davey, Davey Johnstone, yeah. right? So there's something about traveling the country and not just going on Instagram or going on YouTube, but going physically to see people, whether it's 200 people at the cavern 
Right. Or 50,000 people at the City Field Stadium. You go and you perform in front of those people. And that's what McCartney still has to this day and will have till his dying day. The desire to communicate and connect with live people. It's, there's nothing like it. Nothing. It's amazing. This week, as we're recording this in uh, August 1st of 2018, uh, it's the anniversary of the Beatles. Today is the anniversary of the Beatles' last gig at the Cavern Club in 1963. Because here we go. You know, we're ready to, we're taking off. And here's the stat that just puts me on my ass. They started, first show as the Beatles at the Cavern was February of 61. Last show, August 1st, 63. In those two years, they played approximately 300 times just at the Cavern. Wow. Not including Aintree or right. the Jack around the Coffee House uh-huh. or going to Blackpool or whatever. Just that basement, wow. 300 shows in two years. And whenever we talk about overnight success and suddenly Bad Company uh-huh. and the first album's amazing, uh-huh. and Billy Joel, the first album's amazing. And uh-huh. then, like, you have to understand the grind of how hard, it, how much work, the practice that goes into mm-hmm. it to get to that point that when you get on a stage by that point, you're amazing. You know, when they talked about when they went to, oh, we did a whole show about when they went to, uh, to Hamburg, mm. and they were looking at their shoes and just playing notes. And it was Bruno, the, the mafia club mm, right, the owner, was the one yeah. screaming at them, mock show, mock show, what, mock show. Make a show, do something, uh-huh. and they start jumping around and dancing, clowning, and clowning yeah, around, and yeah. you know, and do, trying to do Chuck Berry's duck walk. Yeah, and it said so. And John Lennon says so. You know, it all falls apart. We get kicked out. George is underage. Yeah. You know, we don't have our gear. It, it, Pete Best said we didn't. I didn't know if I was getting my drum kit back. They packed it up and said they'll send it sometime. He said we're all working. Paul's Paul's working in the winter. He's as an assistant in the post office, wow. shipping packages. Wow. You know, George is back at school. No, maybe we had our shot. And yeah. they need one extra band on Boxing Day at this little club. All right, well, let's do a show. And nobody had ever seen a show like that before in Liverpool. I never knew that. This yeah, is at the cavern. Yeah, yeah no, so it, was, it, was, it wasn't even a cavern. It was like a pub. Some yeah. local promoter was doing a Boxing Day show, yeah. eight you know, local acts, and the one local act couldn't make it. And they said, well, the Beatles wow. are back. They went, yeah, but I hear they weren't all that good. Uh, you know, swinging blue jeans were better. Uh, okay, yeah. He goes, yeah, give them a shot. So they uh, went on last, and they almost took the place apart. Uh, he goes, you have to come back next week. And that's what he, he said. We came back, John said, we came back from Hamburg, and nobody could touch us. Right, right. Well, it was a baptism of fire. They were right. playing seven or eight hours a night <laughs> on various stimulants. And, you know, how many sets can you do you have to do? They do like a one-hour set with a 20-minute break, and they do it, all, do it all over again. It's funny you should mention the fact that they were given a shot, you know, by going on last at this pub. We did a show, Free did a show up in the north of England. We were still like, we were nobody, but we were grinding away. Same and, story, though, right? A parallel. It's your work hard, get paid nothing or Exactly. 10 and quid. we got, I think, 100 quid, which really wasn't a lot. Um, but we had a day off. It was up in Sunderland. It was a famous pub, and uh, the name escapes me. Someone will, will tell me. Uh, we had a, a 100 quid, and we had a day off. So we thought we'll stay in this uh, club because the next day, Jethro Tull are going to be playing, and we'll go and see them. We'll just go down the stairs into the, the club and go and see them. So about four in the afternoon on our day off, the promoter comes to Andy, and who was the kind of businessman, even though he was only, Andy Fraser. Yeah, even though he was only eight years old. <laughs> 
He was very young. And he says, Jethro Tull can't make it. They're, you know, they're stuck on the M1. They're, they're broken down. There's no way they're going to make it for tonight. Would you step in? We have a sold-out place. Because we need a band. Jethro, yeah. Now, we'd played the night before to maybe 20 people. This is what This year, club held Simon? a thousand. Oh, this was 69 or 69, yeah, before right. the Isle of Wight when it all went crazy. This club holds a thousand, maybe 1,200. And it's sold out because Jethro is so bloody popular. He said, would you would you play in their place? So instead of Andy sort of saying, first thing he said, well, how much are we getting? <laughs> <laughs> I think they, they gave us 250 quid. But my point is we were kind of terrified because this was the major league. This was like Billy Joel not being able to play the garden because he's got laryngitis. Right. And whatever opening, I know he doesn't have an opening right, act, but... but You've got to go on. The guys in the local pub next door are yeah. going to fill in. Yeah, could you fill in the Billy Joel uh, cover band, right. right? So we're in the wings. The guy, the promoter goes down. The place is packed. He says, ladies and gentlemen, I've got a bit of bad news. Uh, you know, big moan. <laughs> uh, Jethro are un unable to make it and lots of booze and shit. Fuck you. Blah, blah, blah. But we've got a lovely little band who were here last night and uh, they're prepared to come on and entertain you. And it's free. The place went nuts. Really? I mean, they said they cheered. We thought, wow. So I never, and I'm getting chills just, just telling you now, we went on and we tore the place up because they, they'd heard about us you know, through word of mouth. It wasn't Instagram or social media. This was, you've got to see that fucking man from last night. It was so good. It was so good. And the fact that Jethro couldn't turn up, that was a drag. But we stormed the place, and I believe... <clears throat> it was the jazz club at Red Car. All right, That's the, jazz, the, yeah, the jazz club at Red Car, and that I think was one of the turning points, if not the turning point, before All Right Now came along, that launched the band. We came away from that gig, and a different band. We could do it. We knew we could do it, and and nothing stopped us. You were still playing, but now you had the confidence <clears throat> to believe mm. that you could take a thousand yeah, people yeah, and easy, rock them. Easy. Wow, mm. it's so funny that on on any level, from the Beatles to Free to Jethro Tull to any one of the bands that we love, there's a moment as you're growing when you say, "You know what? I think this is going to work. <laughs> yeah, I think this good. is something." You know, it's and true. it's not necessarily the notes or the beat, mm. but you have the confidence, even as an athlete. You know right. that moment when you win, when you think, "Boy, I don't belong here." And you win. Right, and you right. go, you know what? Maybe I do belong here. All right, right. Simon Kirk, free and bad company, my guest. And uh, we've always talked so many great Beatles stories. Uh, this week, August, is also the anniversary of the concert for Bangladesh mm. uh, that George Harrison put together. And again, like everything else the Beatles did, the Beatles did it, and the whole world says, oh, so that's how you do it. <laughs> Nobody, <laughs> they'd never, no rock band had ever played in a sports stadium before. Great, my friend, may rest in peace, crazy, Sid Bernstein books the Beatles into Shea Stadium and the whole world goes, oh, okay, so we do that now. Uh -huh. And see, there were always benefits. There were always musical benefits for causes in the clubs and the pubs uh -huh. and the local guy. But no major rock star ever called every other major rock star for his friend Ravi Shankar mm -hmm. for what happened in Bangladesh and India mm -hmm. and puts together a concert at Madison Square Garden. And to this day, 2018, when there's a benefit, when it's 9-11 or Hurricane Sandy mm -hmm. or Hurricane Katrina or whatever happens, to this day, 
we do it exactly the same way mm -hmm. as George did it. Mm -hmm. The lights got better. The video screens got better. The microphones are better. But nothing has changed. They set the table. This George said, this is how you do it, and mm -hmm. just made it up. And the whole world went, okay, then. That's how you do it. And he calls all these people. He calls Ringo, gets Eric Clapton, mm -hmm. and off we go. Yeah. Well, I think a lot of it stemmed from his uh, rock-solid faith. You know, George was a very spiritual man, and, and Ravi had alerted George to this terrible famine that was the result of the, the war in Bangladesh, and, and the, the hundreds of thousands of people were starving. And as I said before, there was no social media. We were just relying on, on TV reports. But he had this rock-solid faith uh, in, from his religion, and he thought, you know what, I'll get all my friends and we'll we'll go to Madison Square and actually, well, let's take it on the road. I believe they played other places. Right. I think they did, uh, did they L.A. Do, maybe, yeah. but he wanted to do a small tour with it and the guys wouldn't do they it. They wouldn't do it. I mean, they didn't know if Dylan was coming and, oh. you know, Bobby and Bob and at the last minute right. Dylan shows yeah, up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But he thought that John was coming oh. with John, and, he's, and he said, well, you know, it's got to be me and Yoko. And George said to him, no, it's just you. It's for benefit, and that's what's going to bring the house down. And she can be here, but for musically, it needs to be you, and he wouldn't come. Yeah. And it was one of those, that awkward friendship band moment where it, I, I understand both people's point of view mm -hmm. exactly, but that's one of those moments where you think, I wish John Lennon had seen, I was able to step back and see the larger picture of the mm -hmm. moment yeah. and say, you know what, Ringo's here. Oh my Whether God. Paul's here or not, I need to walk Ooh. out on that stage. And even even if I just sang Tutti Frutti, that's a moment where I should be on stage for this. Three three Beatles on the same stage, that would have been just, yeah. But, I mean, you know, John was going through his problems. And, yeah. um, you know, they were all a little screwed up, if completely. you know what I mean. yeah. Eric was completely out, out to lunch. And that doesn't help no. most. That doesn't help friendships much <laughs> no. at all. And especially when he'd been shagging his wife. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's amazing that, that, the, that Simon, the whole thing. I always say this, I, and I ask you. So you you fall in love with your best friend's wife. You tell mm. your best friend, I want to marry your wife. Mm. Say, go ahead. You know, George writes the greatest love songs in the world for mm -hmm. Patty. So Clapton writes the best rock song in the world for his unrequited love for Patty. Layla. Ma right. Yeah. Marries Patty, writes the greatest love song in the world after marrying her with Wonderful Tonight. Yeah. You know, and, and then in the end, divorces Patty, and somehow George and Clapton stay friends and till the end. Bosom buddies, and they, they loved each other. It's beyond I, my comprehension. I know, I know because they, I don't know, there was just no animosity between them. And I, I don't know, so I'm not even going to put it out there, what was going on between George and Patty. I know Patty uh, back in the day, I knew her very well. She was a lovely, one of the most beautiful women, not only looking, but inside. She had a beautiful personality. Everyone loves her. And and I don't know, they just, I guess back in those days, free love was around. And, yeah, you know, hey, yeah, man, yeah. I love your wife. Well, you know, take her, but have her back by six o'clock. <laughs> <laughs> it's like fucking hell. But, <laughs> you know, we're going out to dinner that night. Yeah, exactly. Um, be, be back for dinner. But it, there are some friendships that just transcend those those sort of uh, torpedoes. Talk about transcending success. Simon, and you told this live on Breakfast with the Beatles one morning. We were doing a George show. Um, 
you know, I said there's every there's so many bands that are successful, and the Stones are the most successful rock band in the world. They've been doing mm. this since '64. They're still mm. touring. I love the Stones. People say, "Are you a Stones or a Beatles fan?" Mm. I go, "Yes." I'm yeah, a, yeah, I'm a rock fan. What of do you course. mean choose? But there's a shelf that nobody can touch in terms of the importance of what every album meant of success and the definition of it, which to me Simon has. Was it Christmas Eve or New Year's Eve? It was New Year's Eve and at, George, were, yeah. at, at George's little well, there, flat. There were several so, things, by, by the way, yeah. just in case you don't know, that George's George's house is about the size, if not slightly larger, than Buckingham Palace. I would say Grand Central Station, actually, but it, it's, yeah, it's a little smaller than Buckingham Palace. It was It's called Friar Park. It's in Henley on Thames, just outside London. And it was built by a, a rather eccentric guy. Uh, uh, Frankie Crisp. Sir Frank Crisp, yeah. He did the song for him. Oh, okay. Remember Sir Frankie Crisp? Is no, on I didn't the, know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but, but it was a, an amazing house, and... Um, where do I start? I mean, the, the, this one evening uh, culminated in, in several stories, uh, but I think the most, the famous one that I like recounting more than the others uh, is when we were in the middle of the festivities, uh, New Year's Eve, and there were, I guess, about a hundred people in in George's living room, but it was you know an enormous living room. Once again, there's a hundred people in George's living room, and there was plenty Not of crowds. No, no. <laughs> So about halfway through, you know, about 10, 10.30, George comes up to me and he says, hey, I want to show you something. I thought, wow, okay. Um, just me? And, and so he says, he beckons and we go for a walk. And we go down the main hall, which has got every platinum and gold album, She Loves You, through the Abbey Road, through the... I'm going, wow, wow. And I thought, that's it. Maybe that's what he wants to show me, all the Beatles... Uh, gold and platinum albums, uh, but no, we keep on going, and the music recedes into the distance, <laughs> and we end up in the kitchen, which is you know an enormous kitchen, and in the back of the kitchen on these flagstones, there's a huge ring, like set in the stone, and he bends down and he starts pulling on this. I said, George, you want a hand? He said, No, no, I got this, and. He pulls up this big flagstone to sort of 90 degrees and I hear this water like... And I thought, well, bloody hell, maybe he thinks I'm a plumber. <laughs> not, a not a drummer. Maybe he's got some leaking down here. And, he's, and he gets a flashlight and he says, come on. And we go down these little step ladder, little, little ladder, down to the water and there's a big water. I can't see anything, just this lapping of a bit of water. And there's a little rowboat bobbing, you know, attached to the ladder. So get in. So I think, fucking oh, hell. All right. So I get in, and he gets in, and he's, he pulls out these little oars, and he starts rowing. And somewhere he, he hits a light, boom. And we're in a lake, which is underneath his house. And I Underneath mean, Friar Park Estate. Yeah, the, the, the Sir Frank Crisp had built the house on a man-made lake. And I guess the lake was about, I don't know, a couple of hundred feet across. I mean, it was big. And there was water. I don't know how It was deep. big for one of those private under-the-house yeah, lakes. Un that, under those... Like the ones that you and I have, not nearly as big <laughs> as, as that lake. I got some rising damp. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's about yeah, it. I got some damp in the closet. So, and then... 
all around this, it's a circular lake. There are these huge aquariums set into the stone with these koi fish and goldfish and blue angelfish. And I am, for once, speechless. <laughs> and we're, no kidding. And I'm being rowed in this underground lake, and you can hear the music upstairs, you know, all the festivities. And George looks at me, and he smiles and says, nice, isn't it? What do you say? I didn't. I mean, like I said. Not bad. That was the understatement of the century. Nice, isn't it? So we went round, and we had, I think we had a little smoke. We came back to the uh, to the ladder, and we climbed up into the kitchen, went back to the party. Thanks thanks for rowing me around the lake, George. <laughs> yeah, there's, not, there's nothing to say. There's nothing to say. Wasn't that the night... With the guy from EMI, yeah, yeah. Do you mind telling that and one? And this, this was, yeah, yeah. This is a good part, story. That's sort of part two of what the fuck. Yeah, <laughs> this is like what, and it was a bit of class because the guy waited until one minute past uh, midnight, New Year's Eve. We'd so done the old Lang Syne, you know. What year is this? Equation. I think it would have been seventy-eight into seventy-nine. Okay. We'd sung the song that no one really knows the, the lyrics to. May all acquaintance be forgot. Right. And that's where I draw a blank. And we did the hokey cokey where we all go into a ring and come back out. It's some Scottish thing. <laughs> and, and we all sat down like, breathless from the jogging around. And then one of George's PAs comes in and says, George, there's someone at the door. No, show him in. Come on, you know. La, la. First foot, which I believe is Scottish tradition, Someone comes to you on the first minute of the new year, you have to let them in. Really? Yeah, it's called nice. First Foot. Very nice. Anyway, George nice. isn't Scottish, but he knew the, the tradition. So this guy walks in, and he's dressed in full livery, uh, chauffeur's livery, which he has the tunic with the uh, parallel buttons down the side. Wow. The jodhpur uh, pants really? and the, the riding boots. And he's got this... Um, presentation box, I guess it's about 18 inches by 4 inches, that you'd have a nice necklace that you give to your wife every 50 years. Yeah. Uh, I mean, every five years, of course. Um, and he gives it to, to, to George. Didn't say a word. And George says, oh. So he plonks it down on the, the table, and everyone crowds around. It's black. Uh, you don't know this guy. Nobody no, knows no, this guy. No, no, this guy is like, who the fuck is this guy? But anyway... George is one of the most uh, en entertaining and don't, he trusts no, everyone. He trusts, he loves everyone. So the guy walks in and he opens it up and inside there's a solid gold telegram, like the old telegrams before the internet came in. And it's solid, it's like a, a, a gold ingot. So George brings it out and, and engraved on it, it says, to George Harrison from Sir Joseph Lockwood of EMI Industries, Congratulations on the sale of your billionth record. Billionth. With a B. <laughs> and George looks at it and goes, oh, that'll make a nice paperweight. And puts it to one side. Anyway, does anyone want a drink? There's no, there are no words. Like, what the fuck? That was 40 years ago. That Clapton sitting there. You Clapton, guys I sitting believe there. Clapton was there. There are no words. And then he just, no, no words. And Nothing like, to say. <sighs> Nothing to no. say. So he was so modest. And he was always worried. He was always worried about... Uh, he was one of the first people to have a home studio. Yeah. I um, mean, he had a lovely studio at the top of the house. Big board and everything. But he'd just gotten over this, um, he's so fine, you know, from the yeah, ship the on. Yeah, the lawsuit, yeah. And he lost. 
and you know, uh, alluding to the Marvin Gaye debacle last year right. when those poor Farrell and um, yeah. Thick, you know, got yeah. sued for seven million. It's terrible, a terrible result. But George had been hammered, I believe, for about a million pounds, and he said that's three hundred thirty thousand pounds. A fucking note. He's so fine, my sweet <laughs> lord. And he lost. So he was kind of paranoid whenever he wrote. And we went up to the studio many times. And he'd go, Simon, does this sound like anything? Go, no, man, it doesn't. He was always worried that he was going to get, you know. Get hit again. Picked on. It's, uh, you know, it, there was a, one of my favorite stories of that world of what they've accomplished, a billion songs. Uh, getting to Ringo, and you toured mm. with Ringo and the All-Stars. Mm. Uh, the late Greg Lake, may he rest mm. in peace, who become a friend. And I know you had I met him. It. And I, I love ELP. I was a prog rock kid. Uh, yes, and ELP. I was a keyboard guy. Yeah, yeah. So Keith Emerson and Rick Wakeman oh. were, oh, my God. Emerson was amazing. Yeah, yeah. Amazing. And Greg told the story. He was sitting right where you are and said, when I got on the Ringo tour, before I left London, I went to High Street and I got this big Beatles, like, fake book. Just to learn the chords. A, it'll be fun to do because I never learned the chords. And maybe he'd want to pull a song out or something. So I'll at least have some familiarity yeah, yeah, with yeah. some Heads of the songs. Yeah. You, you've always got downtime and I've got an acoustic guitar. It'd be fun to screw around and never learn Beatles songs. Right. He said, so we'd rehearsed. We were like a week in. We're having lunch. And we come in, back into the room. you know, And Ringo's kind of rummaging through my kit you know, just for the hell of it. And he pulls out this book. And he says, Greg, I never saw this before. Where'd you get this? And he said, you know, on the high street, you know, by region. Oh, yeah, yeah. And Greg tells the story. He goes, Rich, can I ask you something? He goes, anything. He says, so, you know, ELP, Lucky Man, and From the Beginning, and Carnival Mm -hmm. Night. We've got a few songs, you know. Clapton has about 10 or 20. He goes, Rich, there are 200 songs in this book. (laughs) You've been t- you were together what seven years? There are two hundred songs in this book, and every single one is the biggest song in the world. Uh, yeah. Rich, and and he just sat. He looks and he just looked at him. He goes, "I wasn't being a smartass, or you know." He goes, "I just looked at him. Like how mathematically? How do you, how does this happen?" And he goes, and Ringo sat down next to me and says, "Greg, all I can tell you is every day, and I do mean every day, if we're making a movie, or if we're recording, or if we're in a van going somewhere." The first one would come in and go, hey, fellas, I got a song and play you the greatest song you ever heard. And then the other one would go, oh, I think I've got a better song. And he'd play that one. And then the first guy would go, well, then listen to this one. He, goes, when you were, he said, when we were, we, you know, we were recording song A, mm-hmm. and in between takes, they're screwing around and coming up with how to do mm-hmm. the song we're going to do tomorrow or the song we're going to do next. God. And he said, I just looked at him and he looked at me and shrugged. I'm like, and that's the answer. Like, there's no, when I think of how many bands, bands I love, who have that one incredible song mm-hmm. and spend their lives sometimes going to drink, sometimes losing their minds, mm-hmm. looking for a second song. And you can never quite find that second no, song. You can't replicate that right, first right. thing. And Jerry Rafferty had, had We Love Steelers Wheel. And mm. then Baker Street, remember, was the biggest song in the world with that mm-hmm. sax solo. Yeah. Da, 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 and went nuts and just lost it because he could never have a, he never found that follow up song. And you know, Well, I think he, yeah, because they, they wrote on their own. But the Beatles wrote, you know, for those four or five years when everything was golden, they, John and, 
and Paul, they wrote together and they spurred each other on. And uh, how about this? How about that? How about yeah, this? How yeah, about yeah. that? I I think honestly to to in, to shrink it down, I think their actual collaborative years were no more than three or four because after about sixty six, then they started writing pretty much by themselves. Absolutely. Even though it was Lennon McCartney, you know, publishing. Right, but the White Album to me is all solo material that uh, each one played on. You can uh, hear the difference. Uh, this is a Paul song. This is a John song. This is a Paul song. This is a George song. This is a song. This, you know, and it's not the same energy of, you know, as Paul mm. always said, it's getting better all the time, mm. better, better, better. And John adds, can't get much worse. Wow. He says, I would have never thought of that line. Yeah. You know, if I'll come up with the bridge. Hey, that's great. I'll do the bridge. Or, Which was evident on, to me, the two most uh, formative albums was Rubber Soul and Revolver. Yeah. That's right. when they were really firing on, on all four cylinders. It was just something about those two albums that were just dynamite. And then, uh, yeah, all right, Pepper. Fucking hell, Pepper was pretty amazing. But right. it, it, uh, even then, it just started showing signs of grandiosity. You know, the, the orchestra, and the, the, the kind of, hey, man, let's try that. You know, no, fuck it. I want my idea. They had Lennon swinging. L Lennon wanted to be swung <laughs> by his feet right. across the, uh, you know, in front yeah. of a mic to get that, da, da, the panning. And they said, John, we can do that with a switch. You know, I can right. pan you left and right with a switch. No, I want to be swung by my feet. <laughs> In front of a microphone. They said Mel out to get a rope. Yeah. Can we just concentrate on the bloody music, guys? You know. Right. So really, Revolver and Rubber Soul, and then, and to a lesser degree, people will say I'm a heretic, but Rubber uh, Rubber Soul and Revolver, to me, were the greatest albums. Yeah. No, I, I don't think you'll get much of an argument. Sergeant Pepper's was a culmination mm. of all that, as you said, the orchestras and the backwards masking, the effects. It was the ultimate of psychedelic effects. Yeah. And couldn't couldn't get much bigger, which is why I understand why, and you know, it carry over to Magical Mystery Tour, which kind of continued that mm. sixty seven, and then sixty eight. Hey, we're just playing Blackbird uh, and some rockers uh, and Obladi, uh, and we, you know, we ch even though we're coming apart at the seams because it's just a pressure cooker. But mm. whenever somebody asks me, did Yoko break up the Beatles? Did you know what the pressure cooker of being the Beatles? You're on a rocket right. going faster than anyone's ever gone. You know, you you told me Free broke up because of the pressure of oh. touring and the this that you couldn't, you know, it explodes And, and our success was a fraction of this. you right. got to remember back then, they were still in their early, mid-20s. You know, in 1966, Lennon was 26 years old. Right. Ringo, I believe, was uh, maybe six months older. They weren't, they weren't even 30. And they were under the most intense scrutiny. They'd given up touring because they couldn't hear each other. They hated it. They right. started hating. Ringo told me, so we, we were terrified of going on stage. And not just that, but leaving the stage, going back to the hotel. We were in fear of our lives, night after night after night. And we couldn't hear each other. You so know, what are we doing? I had to watch their bums. Yeah. To say, you know, oh, the chorus is coming now. So two years of, of this ridiculous touring using equipment that you wouldn't find in the most self-respecting club. <laughs> Little Vox AC30s, you know, going through the, 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 the PA of in the, the stadium. the sports stadium, yeah. Ah. So they just said, screw it. And then they, they, they got into drugs. And Ringo is quite open about it. They started doing heroin and heroin and speedballs and coke, and they just became a reclusive bunch of twenty-year-olds in a in a, a studio and produced masterpieces. But their social life, their active uh, live playing days, were over. And when you stop touring, 
I believe you cut off the lifeblood. Look at McCartney now. He's 76 Why years old. Why is he still touring? Because right. he loves He's opened up that spigot of playing to people and feeding off them. But when the Beatles did it and it killed them. When they stopped touring, I believe it killed them. I always wondered, I've said this forever, imagine if the equipment, if the stage equipment was, they, they were probably about eight years ahead of what the equipment became was behind yeah. them. When the Grateful Dead were the first ones to do the wall of sound behind them hmm. and all the amps and all the speakers, and they could fill a stadium, like where they saw that and went, no, no, we want a thousand speakers hmm. and we want... 50 amps, 50 100-watt amps. What are you, remember the, the Vox company made them 100-watt amps for the stage, went, this should take care of it. We're at Shea Stadium. There's nothing. <laughs> it can't reach home plate. 50,000 people are screaming. Do you understand? It could barely fill it if it was empty. It's nothing's going to happen here. So I always wonder, like, with the equipment that Paul has now, where he sounds amazing, imagine if they had that oh. in 65, 66. Well, Maybe it would have... I'm not saying it would have lasted forever, but I don't think they would have hated it as much if there was security. There's a great video when they played Washington, D.C., mm -hmm. and it's a bowl, and the mm -hmm. stage is sort of at the bottom yeah, I remember. of the arena. And there's there's a guy, there's an, a retiree, an elderly gentleman sitting on a stool by the side of the stage, and that's the security. Mm. Oh, and God, I remember really? thinking, that's, that is God <laughs> watching over these four wow. lads, and the stage was supposed to turn, and it didn't. And mm. John's yelling, Mal, get the drums. And Mal's got to run out and physically turn the kit because wow. it didn't turn. In the well, stage. look, you've got to remember, Ken, back in those days, there was no monitors. I don't, how there were no monitor system. How did you hear anything? When we you were did playing? the Isle of Wight, uh, and we there was no monitor. It was just unheard of. You listened to what was coming out of the amps. Paul Rogers would have his little WEM, WEM, uh, it was an English brand. He'd have the speakers, uh, column speakers, turned in a little so he could hear himself. But there were no monitors. Nowadays, you get monitors if you play in the smallest club. So the fact that they couldn't hear themselves because of the, the shrieking and screaming would have been alleviated a little had they had monitor systems. And, I, you know, who knows? They might, have, they might have toured another couple of years. I don't know. I still think it's amazing that of all the success, and here's exactly what you never see, and I'm not knocking them, but the Taylor Swifts and the boy bands and Ariana Grande and the most successful pop stars of the day, they do their thing. Mm. They make more music that look that sounds like the way it's supposed to sound. Mm -hmm. They look the way they're supposed to look. Mm. If you're the if you're doing the wacky act, uh, you know, like like uh, Lady Gaga, a meat dress or a thing, but it's always <laughs> going to be a weird clothing thing. Yeah. But here are the Beatles, the biggest touring band in the world, the Mop Tops, the Beatlemania frenzy, and like you said, what do they do? Saw this, we fire them, and we do Rubber Soul, and we get to Revolver, and now the music's completely changing. We've got long hair. And it's getting more introspective, mm. and we get Eleanor Rigby, and we mm. get in my life, and mm. and we're on this groove, and then you fire that band, you mm. fire the Rubber Soul Revolver band, and we come up with this idea, of you know what, you want to get out on tour? We're gonna like Paul said, we're gonna create a band, we'll call it Sergeant Pepper's Lonely yeah. Hearts Club Band, and that band will tour. That record will be the tour, and they'll be across the world, and we'll just do that, and we'll sit back. Mm. And you know, and then we fire all the satins and the silks and the things, and we'll just put on shirts and ties again, and we'll just get back to it at the white. They just kept changing yeah. and changing, mm. and then to the culmination, like well, let's take one, let's do this, let's end this the right way, and you get to Abbey on Road, on the, on the roof, yeah. and then Abbey Road, yeah. and 
What mm. a way to what a way to finish it with "Let it be," and again that the line to this day to my dying day will give me chills when Paul writes, "And in the end, the love that you make is equal to the love." The love you take was equal to the love, love you make. Beautiful. My, I mean, to this, I shake. I yeah. shake when I think you and could that, write that beautiful that's, song. It's Shakespearean <clears throat> in its, you know, to be or not to be. It's so, it's so and simple and pure. The irony is that they were never more together than on the very last song that they recorded, yeah. which is uh, when the, uh, the three of them were playing guitar. Because Paul's a great guitarist. Not not only is he one of the greatest bass players, he's a great guitarist. So he had a. They all played. And John will take four bars, and then George, and then Paul, and they were so together on the very last song that they did. And it, yeah, I, I get emotional thinking about it because. And in the end, the love you take is equal to the love violin you make. swell. Oh, oh man, that violin swell. Yeah, on my knees. Yeah. to this day, I, even in the studio, Sunday morning drinking coffee, I'm like, oh my god, yeah. what a sound! And their harmonies. You know, they only yes. had four tracks. I believe they had eight tracks a little later in life. But most of those albums were done on four tracks. And look, nowadays, I have my drums on. 12, 12 tracks, just the drums. There's two bloody, two tracks on the bloody snare drum. Come on. Simon Kirk, my special guest. With, thank you so much for talking to the Beatles. What's going on with you musically? What's next for you? Well, um, Bad Company's still around. And we, we do shows. We've, we've actually done about 20 this year. We're, so, we're weekend warriors. We, we, we're doing some more shows with Leonard Skinner. They're, they're hanging it up in about three years' time. And uh, I'm doing solo stuff. I'm going to be doing another album soon. I loved and, your uh, last solo work. Thank you. It was brilliant. Yeah, I, I'm going to invite the people who bought it to dinner. <laughs> Come on, it was but, great. But, no, it didn't it's sell very well. No, it's not, you can't it's sell. Not. You can't sell no. music anymore. It's no. not what it was. But I love doing it. And I'm, that's why I'm you in, do it. I'm in the Paul McCartney school where I just love doing, playing, and I'll play to, to two people, I'll play to 2,000. I, I just love getting out there and playing. Luckily, I made enough money with Bad Company to be, be comfortable for a while. Um, but I love playing, and I still love playing with Bad Company, don't get me wrong. I love playing with Paul. I mean, he's, he's still one of the greatest singers ever. Great rock voice, one of the best. And it's time he was in the Hall of Fame, not just Free or Bad Company, but he should be... As a Hall of Fame. Bad Company goes in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Hopefully. It, it should. Absolutely. Yeah. It should. As I've said, Denny, Denny Lane was here and Denny Sywell. And as I said, Wings should go in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Yeah. Paul's in for, you know, the solo for, for Beatles. Mm. Clapton's in three times. Wow. You know, for the Yardbirds, Yardbirds and, Cream, and, and solo. solo. Yeah. Paul, there's Beatles, and Paul mm. should go in for, yeah. for Wings. It yeah. just, there's a body of work post Beatles. That is on its own, that stands on its own. You know, it's funny you should say that because we both saw the show at the Garden and about 30% of the set is Wings material. Absolutely. And, and you've got to remember that a lot of those people in, that, in the audience were not really that familiar with the Beatles. The ones who are the 30, 30 and younger, well, when they were born, the Beatles had been gone 12 years. So they're more into Wings. Like Maria, my wife, is a little younger than me. She knows more about Wings songs than the Beatles songs. So, yeah, it's I agree. A, it's an, I mean, we saw that show, and in three hours, he yeah. did a slice from every mm. part of his career. Yeah. And in, this, in the breakdown, when they do the acoustic thing, and he played the first song he and John ever wrote oh, yeah. that's on uh, Anthology, In Spite of All the Danger. Yeah. 
And he also played a little bit of the song they did with Rihanna and Kanye, the four or five seconds. And I was thinking about it, it as with Jane, my wife, when he said, you realize he just covered 60 years mm. of recording. Wow. 60 yeah, years. Yeah. Wow. 58. Yep. To, eight, nine, to 2018. Right. Wow. Who has that? Who? No when, I say, can you imagine if Paul ever said, if he says to his team, all right, I've got to assemble a, a set list for tonight. Give me a printout of all my songs. <laughs> <laughs> we don't have enough paper, Paul. Yeah, can you imagine handing this guy nah. a phone book? Right. Do you want it chronologically, alphabetically? How would you like us to present that you can't even begin? Uh. You know, you'd have to separate it into volumes. Yeah. Here's the first things we did. Here's early Beatles. Here's mid Beatles. Like you said, here's Rubber Soul, Revolver, Solo, Here, Solo right. stuff. Here's here's White. Here's here's Let It Be. Here's early Solo. You is uh, you for albums one and two. Here's Wings. Here's late Wings. Here's post Wings Solo. Here's the and you just keep going. <laughs> hey, it's unbelievable. Uh, really? Simon Kirk, I'm going to let you go. Thank you, Ken. I got one last tiny quick rock story for you to tell. Go ahead. Oh. All right. So you said you know where I'm going. Bad Company's been touring with Leonard Skinner. Right. And they had toured with them in the early days. And right. I'm going to ask you just to tell that story about the phone call you got in the middle of the night way back when, first time around Bad Company, touring with Skinner, and the police called you and said that they had uh, locked up uh, Paul Rogers. Oh, yeah. Well, <laughs> No, we were in, in England. We'd just done our first night at Wembley uh, Arena. And I don't know how they did it, but Skinner, we were just about to go on and do the encore. It was Stevie Van Zandt. No, Ronnie, I beg your pardon. Ronnie, Ronnie Van Zandt, right. Ronnie, Artemis, and um, Gary. Gary and they, Collins. They were slightly inebriated. Slightly. And they managed to get on our stage. And we'd known them a little bit. Uh, they'd always championed Free in, in interviews and said, oh, we love Free, la, la, la. But somehow they were in town. I don't know, maybe they were doing a show. But they managed to get on stage as we were about to go on to do the encore. Uh, to do the encore. They, had, they were waving champagne bottles. They were always a class act. <laughs> and and they got a hold of Paul's microphone and said, we love these guys, yeah. And the crowd went crazy. They should be in inducted or whatever. You know. they, they should be in an institution that's that was <laughs> that was ronnie's line and anyway we're going thank you guys now please get off can off, we off finish the show yeah, <laughs> so the, you know we did the encore and i went to my dressing room and we got in the cars and went home la 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 and around about two o'clock in the morning i got a call i don't know why they called me but um there was it was Vine Street Police Station, and they saying, uh, "Mr. Kirk, we need a, a representative, a representative, a lawyer for this. We have a, a chap here called Leonard Skinner, and a chap, a, a chap, yeah, Leonard Skinner, because you can imagine at the booking desk and all these drunk guys, Leonard N L Y N Y R Y D. Anyway, and, and Mr. Paul Rogers, uh, they've been arrested for being drunk and disorderly, and we needed to bail them out. And I said, listen, uh, you know, I'll get hold of Steve Weiss, who was our lawyer, bad company lawyer, and, um, you know, we'll bail him out. By the way, what is the bail set at? I said, £100. Oh. I said, all right, well, we'll bail Paul out, but you can leave that other lot there. <laughs> Simon Kirk. Leaves Leonard Skinner in jail in London. Well done. Thank I love you, Ken. you. Thank you so much. Thank you, brother.